It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 187. Today's topic is adaptation rate or gains rate, if you want to go that route, and its role in progressive overload. Now, we previously did a podcast, episode 129 on progressive loading. We're going to rehammer some of that, uh, but we're going to talk about adaptation rate, what the uh, practical implications of that are for loading and, uh, you know, like how to get more gains out of your workout and, and, and to get more out of your programming. But I'd like to introduce my host, the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, you're new and improved. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, here with some fancy new audio equipment, I guess. So if people think this doesn't sound awesome, then we'll go back to the drawing board. <laughs> the silky smooth sounds of Dr. Austin Baraki now. It's like it's like you can use this for gaming too. I know you're a big big online gamer and <laughs> and those those preteens and teenagers that you're you're going up against uh now can hear you as they murder you I assume because you're playing, you know, role player games. Or I wonder if I could use this for like dictation or something in a more uh, <laughs> useful thing for what I actually do on a day-to-day basis. I remember my third year of medical school, like, you know, your first, those are your first introductions to the hospital where you're like supposed to be there uh, outside of like any sort of shadowing. And I remember like the surgery, the surgeons um, were just like mumbling into a, <laughs> like a recorder. I will, I, what I thought was a recorder, but you know, they're just dictating. And then somehow that would get transferred mm-hmm. to the person who's transcribing their notes and then they would sign them. But think about how that's changed. So that was like 2013 or whatever, 2014, something like that. And now people, they call a service, I I assume, or there's like something that's happening where there's not a transfer of like a file. Like you didn't that back then you had to like record it. And like, I assume you wouldn't, you weren't mailing it at the time, (laughs) but like you might be emailing it which you've protected data or somehow sending it to a service. I don't know. Yeah. There's a bunch of different ways it's been done nowadays. I think there are still definitely medical transcriptionists doing a fair amount of that work, but there's also like the automated systems and things like that, that people dictate the uh, speech to text kind of stuff that you go back and work your way through. Radiologists use it ex- almost exclusively in there in a lot of their work too. So yeah. yeah, I'm still waiting for the dot phrases to enter Google, like the email client <laughs> where you can just make a dot phrase and it like, Boom. Long, long response uh, comes up. Um, Okay. Before we pop into this week's podcast, uh, we have new articles on the website about Spondy. We did a podcast with Dr. Derek Miles last week on that rehashing that topic. So I'll link that both the podcast and the articles in the description below. Um, We're also going to be trying to do some video of the podcast. People, people keep asking, why can't you put the podcast on YouTube? And I was like, well, previously we weren't recording video because, you know, it's our face recording it's just our face you don't need that (laughs) i agree a thousand percent but i think some people prefer to watch the stuff on youtube rather than listen um on whatever podcast client they use so we're gonna do that if we should keep doing it make sure you comment and like and do all that other sort of stuff so the algorithm knows that the stuff's being watched and uh i've also been getting a lot of not they, they were supposed to be questions like when you do the ask me anything thing on on instagram like ask me a question and people are like do another vlog training vlog. And I'm like, it's just the training for me, the resistance training stuff is so, is so boring right now, but I could get motivated. Maybe if, uh, if you guys comment on our, our YouTube stuff and, and tell me to do some vlogs, maybe I'll get motivated to do it. I mean, keep recording all of it. I have, I don't even know. I assume a full terabyte now of just training video 
that I could, you know, make a vlog from training vlog from the last few weeks of training or whatever. I guess but, I could uh, be convinced to record some clips and send them your way too. Yeah, we used to do that. I mean, I think it's fine. I just, you know, the other thing is like, I want barbell medicine to expand past just like, oh yeah, you guys lift and are doctors, right? And, and I think we have, we're, we're, we're transcending some different stuff, certainly in the pain and rehab space, certainly in um, some of the the dietary interventions and, and dietary pattern space, uh, the whole nutrition field. And then also obviously in, you know, science communicators with respect to exercise in uh, primary care and, and, and medicine. So that's all, that's all good. But I, I don't want like a clinician to come to our YouTube channel and be like, so these guys just lift and happen to be doctors, Yeah, you know? So, so it's gotta be a good blend, but we'll, we'll, we'll try to strike a balance. And I, I want to make sure that people are getting some edutainment out of what we put up. So we'll do that. Uh, also I'm going to keep plugging our apparel. I'm going to keep plugging it because it, that we're, we're selling out and I, people keep saying, you didn't tell us about the apparel. And I'm like, here we are. So this is the third week in a row. I'm plugging our new apparel. If you want to support Barbell Medicine and uh, rock some pretty sweet new threads in the gym, um, head over to our website and you can pick up our uh, our new apparel just dropped. And again, things are selling out. And we just basically, when something sells out, we'll just, uh, it's like limited edition. So we're going to retool and come out with some new stuff in, in about a month or so. But uh, yeah, as of right now, we're, we're, we're going through some existing inventory and check that out. And then finally, our app is still available on the Apple App Store. So all of our templates, all of our articles, all of our material, all of our resources to help you pick training programs, modify training programs, work through injuries, all that sort of stuff on the app. It's available for free for all our blue bubble friends. And then, uh, you know, the green bubble folks, well, we'll get to it. We promise to announce it promise to announce it if you're an android user once once that's uh, up and ready okay let's pop into this this week's podcast here's the premise what actually is progressive overload and how should we use that principle in training so austin you want to give the listeners at home um, a definition of what is progressive overload uh i think I think, um, yes, but we're coming at <laughs> nope. this from a few different angles. And so, so that's kind of like the, the, the basis that we're, we're starting out from. So it is a very commonly cited principle. And when I think back to like my prior athletic kind of pursuits and things like that, it seems to be one that is most commonly cited in the context of strength training, um, which is going to come up again a little bit later. Cause it's interesting in terms of its implications for how we should train, um, and this principle holds that in order to generate whatever the fitness adaptation is of choice, again, in the strength training land, typically it's like getting stronger or uh, muscular hypertrophy, building more muscle mass, that the body has to be challenged by progressively greater training stimulus over time, that the work has to get harder over time in some fashion in order to keep driving the adaptations that you are seeking, whether strength or muscle mass, or again, theoretically could be extrapolated to any number of other fitness adaptations. Um, but this has been interpreted in a few different ways. Um, there's kind of a more traditional view and, and that has certain implications for how people go about their programming, how they make decisions in their training and how they, they manage their training and like, you know, loading over time. And then there's a different perspective and that's kind of like what we've come to and, and what we're going to end up hammering out in this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. The second view is more, it has more to do with sequencing. The, the actual definition hasn't changed. It's just you know, does the increase, so the heavier, the harder, the faster, shorter, whatever is more, 
does that cause the adaptation in and of itself or does the adaptation occur first and then you match the individual by making it heavier, harder, faster, shorter, whatever it is, um, such that you're you're providing enough stimulus to take advantage of the adaptations that you've already had uh, uh, have acquired, um, and then subsequently drive more adaptations. So we're going to get into that and see which side of the fence do you guys fall on. Hopefully, we make a convincing argument, and uh, you'll. Uh, you know, do, do what we tell you to do. <laughs> so, uh, just, just to lay the land here, um, how does training actually drive fitness adaptation? So a training program produces a unique training stress for an individual based on the program's variables, the person's current fitness levels and performance potential. Uh, also the environment and many other variables that kind of go into how does an individual response to exercise, but the training stress, uh, is effectively what the person experiences from the program, you can use RPE, uh, reps and reserve, barbell velocity, et cetera, to kind of measure training stress. That is the uh, what the individual experiences from the stimuli, which is basically the nuts and bolts of the program. And the training stress, what you experience, drives both fitness adaptations and fatigue. In this podcast and all of our articles and stuff, we basically describe the positive changes that occur secondary to exercise as fitness adaptations. These are things like increasing muscular strength, muscular size, cardiorespiratory endurance, uh, reducing resting blood pressure, uh, psychological changes, and many others. So they're not just like um, stronger, bigger, faster, but you could also be like have better cognitive function. You could also have uh, reduced resting blood pressure, better glucose control, uh, for example. Um, and on the other hand, the subjective experience of negative exercise-induced changes, things like muscular soreness, reduced force production, feeling tired, et cetera, we'll just call fatigue. And this is different than fatigability, which uh, usually measured by a more objective metrics, although that is a whole nother rabbit hole that maybe we'll get into at some point. Um, but the subjective experience of these negative sort of exercise-induced changes, we'll call that fatigue. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but we can actually measure how much stress is being applied uh, to an individual from a particular training program. Uh, you, by convention, this is typically a training session or a particular aspect of a training session. So you can use things like RPE, which stands for rating of perceived exertion that tells you how hard the thing was, the task that you just did. You can use reps in reserve, repetitions in reserve, basically is a way to uh, ballpark how many repetitions you could do maximally uh, from a given effort. So if you had a set of squats that you did a set of five repetitions and you rated that two reps in reserve, you could do two more. Um, and sometimes that correlates to RPE, right? So sometimes you would rate that an RP eight if you were using that same sort of scale, but that scale is not you know, universally used in all resistance training contexts. So for example, if you're doing singles, we typically don't use a reps and reserve scale. So a single at eight doesn't necessarily mean you could do a triple with that. Uh, some people, some coaches may use a different sort of uh, a scale for that. It might feel like a heavy opener or a light second attempt if someone has experience at a powerlifting meet. You can make this up however you want. Uh, although I will tell you that the utility of your terms and your scale uh, need to match the, the client and the individual. And also it should be, uh, uh, you know, reliable in that you can use the same thing over and over and over again. It's reproducible. And hopefully on top of that, it's actually valid and it's telling you what you actually want to know. So uh, there's this, this funny, uh, it's not actually a funny paper, but I did chuckle when I, when I read it. So maybe there's some humorous value, particularly uh, with respect to RPE. Uh, 
there's a there was a paper that they they use the feeling scale where it's like <laughs> go into the gym and uh, pick a load that you can do about 10 repetitions and it should feel easy <laughs> or pick a load where it feels kind of hard and or pick a load that feels really hard and you know people who were untrained had no previous experience this were able to like do this and uh, the intensities that they were working at actually correlated pretty well so that happened to work out pretty well and be valid in that the terms of the scale actually told you what you wanted to uh, what you wanted to know and, and accomplish the task. But I could envision a scale that somebody created out of nowhere that had no validity and like did not work. Um, but in any case, we can use things like RPE, RIR, and then velocity loss. So how fast the bar moves um, to measure the training stress uh, of a given training program, usually a particular element of a training program, like a single exercise and rep prescription, et cetera. But these ratings, these measurements of training stress, which uh, 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 we collectively refer to as the internal load, so what the individual experiences, these differ between individual given the same program. So t- two individuals could be doing the same training program and, and, and you know rate a certain task with a different RPE. Um, and experience different outcomes from that. Why is that, Austin? Like, why why are people different? <laughs> yeah, and and this gets into some of the criticisms that you hear about these kind of uh, measures of internal load, these kind of uh, uh, scales and 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 rating systems that that we apply to training. And they're sometimes criticized because they are felt to lack a certain degree of objectivity. And the implication there is that the only thing that is objective is like the underlying, you know, biological cellular process or something like that, right? Like, and and this has even been looked at where, for example, they'll measure like bloodstream markers of muscle damage after training and see how well that correlates with certain markers of, you know, ratings of fatigue and, and, and performance and things like that. And, you know, very commonly, they don't correlate as well as we would like. And so it's like, we have these super objective things, you know, biological tissue level things, blood tests that do kind of a crappy job at telling us, um, the information that we want. Um, and, and, and that gets to the heart of this matter. Why are people different? What makes people who they are? And there's more of the two people than just their biology. There's genetic, you know, predispositions in all sorts of different directions towards, you know, strength related tasks or more conditioning related tasks or genetic factors that will influence their rates of adaptation and rates of recovery. Uh, There's things like their training history. There's environmental factors that can all influence the stress that a given uh, training stimulus or a given physical task might uh, uh, generate. So, you know, considering the difference in an individual's experience doing a, a, a set a, a single on a particular lift, say it's a deadlift and doing it, you know, uh, at home in a home gym with like classical music playing and like get not getting hyped up at all versus like at a powerlifting meet with people screaming and yelling and like, you know, death metal playing and things like that. Just changing the environmental context can alter the, uh, uh, the, the effects of that same one rep deadlift on the person's physiology and their, you know, subsequent uh, tolerance for that and recovery and things like that. So this is all, um, how stress itself is a complex to use one of our, you know, traditional buzz phrases, a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon, right? It's not, it's, it's more complicated than just like the weight was picked up from here to here. And that's going to generate, you know, this number of units of biological stress and fatigue and things like that. It's quite a bit more complicated. And so that ultimately is what actually makes a lot of these admittedly 
uh, uh, to some extent, subjective ratings, uh, uh, actually quite a bit more useful than some of the critics would would argue. And that's because all of these other factors, these somewhat more intangible things are all baked into that one rating that somebody tells you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you if you tell people to do a set of five on squats, uh, you know, at a, at, a, at a certain weight, right? And let's just say they had all the same one RMs. Well, some some of them are going to rate, you know, that at RP8. Some of them are going to rate it an RP7. Some of them are going to rate an RP9. And, and what you're using these subjective sort of metrics for training stress like RPE, RIR, or velocity loss is to sort of standardize the dose in a way uh, from your prescription. Because if you did not do that, you're going to get these wildly different sort of training stresses, which subsequently drive different amounts, different amounts of uh, fitness adaptations and fatigue. And uh, so that, that leads us into our, our, our next uh, discussion, which is measuring fitness adaptations. But long story long, you have a training stimulus. That's the program that gets applied to the individual. The individual that experiences that training stimulus um, can measure how that affects them via RPE, RIR, velocity loss. We call that the training stress. And then the training stress drives both simultaneously fitness adaptations and fatigue. The sort of difference in training stress that individuals experience is due to that training stimulus, the program being filtered to through all of the unique aspects that make that individual an individual. So their biology, their psychology, their environment, uh, everything that led them to be them. So finally, we get to the end of that sort of formula and we get fitness adaptations and fatigue. So we'll start with fitness adaptations. Many fitness adaptations can be objectively measured, typically by either a demonstrable physical performance or some sort of more static physiological assessment. Um, that kind of brings in this additional wrinkle of complexity because performance potential for a particular task um, is variable day to day. We tend to think about this as a balance of fitness adaptations and fatigue at that time, but there are also extraneous uh, sort of variables like the environment, the individual's mood, their motivation at that time, and many other factors. So again, is there classical music playing? Is it death metal? Which one do they prefer? Did they, you know, they ammonia on board, you know, what's going on? Do they get a trap slap, uh, for example? And some people respond differently to all those things. Um, but performance potential is not like the sort of, you know, static thing. It's dynamic. It changes day to day, hour to hour. I mean, everything. And you guys have all experienced that. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, I'm not strong today. Why? It's like, well, your performance potential is more like a sinusoidal wave. It goes up some days, down other days. And in the middle, you have your average sort of level of strength. Um, but in any case, if all other variables are constant, having more fitness adaptations on board relative to fatigue should allow an individual to demonstrate improved performance. Um, on the other hand, uh, you have these sort of fitness adaptations that don't really vary that much day to day. Um, so as you get fitter and fitter and fitter, for example, your resting blood pressure goes down, your ability to uh, tolerate, deal, and otherwise manage blood sugar levels tends to get better. Your bone mineral density tends to increase, you know, all sorts of these things that are not really related to fatigue or, you know, what music is playing, environmental inputs, et cetera. So when you have fitness adaptations that you're trying to kind of measure ballpark and sort of gauge progress overall that are very dynamic due to things outside of the training program itself, that makes it very difficult to yep measure progress, but then also like choose the correct sort of training stimulus to generate the desired fitness adaptations and a commensurate amount of fatigue. Uh, so 
that wrinkle right there in complex uh, in performance potential is one of the reasons why we made this podcast. Is it's like you have this day to day, week to week, month to month, circadian, <laughs> additionally variability in um, in performance, and it's like okay, so if it's that variable day to day, week to week, whatever, then why should I follow the advice to just add five pounds all the time? You know, and it's like, or, or whatever sort of a static program might tell you. I mean, there are people, and this is, you know, even getting back to more old school programming where people would, you know, write out 12 weeks of programming in advance and every week, every session, every, you know, exercise slot would have predetermined loads, be it based on a percent of one RM or, or predictable weight, you know, weights that progressed in terms of absolute poundage. And so it's like, they could tell you on any given day for the subsequent 12 weeks or however long their training program is going to be exactly what they were going to do on any given day. And it's like, uh, how is it plausible that that is something that would, uh, best fit, uh, the nature of human performance, the nature of human adaptation fluctuations, you know, in fatigue and, uh, and, and, how would that allow somebody to take advantage of good days and account for bad days that we all have? Um, it, it basically doesn't. And so, you mm-hmm. know, that's the kind of approach that a lot of people still will, te- will, will, um, maybe have some, uh, have some preferences towards because maybe it, it feels like, uh, if I just do exactly what's on this paper, then at the tw- end of this 12 week thing, then I'll have this predictable result. Yeah, right. and, 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 and numbers, and I'll have this PR that I set out to accomplish twelve weeks in advance. And it's like, if you're real lucky, then maybe that's the case. But um, I think the further people get into training, or the more um, stuff they have going on in their life, the less practical, the less feasible that is. And part of the reason we talk about this all the time is because, hey, like you know, insisting upon doing that no matter what is how a lot of times people end up getting frustrated, getting burned out, end up needing to consult with our rehab team for injury related issues and things like that. And it's like, we're trying to make this more sustainable, more enjoyable, getting people the tools they need to have a more successful training career. Yeah. And, and even, so that's like, I would call that like the non auto regulated approach to programming. So you're not using RPE, RIR, velocity, anything like that. But even within those folks using auto-regulation, the, the like underlying premise for some people for progressive overload is that, well, it has to go up each week. So even though you didn't like plan out a 12-week block in advance, you're still like, well, it has to be you know 1% heavier, 5% heavier than last week. Otherwise, it's not working. And, and the whole point is like, well, if your performance isn't up 5% or 1%, then what you've just done is applied a training stimulus that is likely to produce a training stress that you are not prepared for yet. And that is going to produce uh, an excess amount of fatigue that by definition you are not prepared for because if you were and everything else was relatively consistent, you'd be able to demonstrate an improvement in performance. Um, so it, it's kind of like if you believe that the only way to get stronger, to get bigger, to get faster, improve conditioning is by forcing the body. You you raise the weight, you increase the volume, you increase the speed, decrease the rest periods, and that forces the body to adapt. Then you're going to select training loads that are outside of your reach versus allowing your body to adapt first and then selecting the appropriate training load to match where you're currently at. 
And we tend to lean towards the latter, and we're going to try to convince you that through the rest of this podcast. So the belief, I think, for that first line of interpret or first way to interpret progressive overload, you know, that you got to do more to get more, um, comes from this idea that like greater training stress is going to drive more adaptations. If it's heavier, I'm going to get stronger. If it's more volume, I'm going to get bigger. If it's shorter rest periods, my cardiorespiratory fitness or, you know, strength endurance is going to improve more than if it were lighter or less or, you know, longer rest periods. Um, that doesn't really pan out that well in the, in the literature. So for example, when you look at, uh, strength training, um, protocols that train closer or further away from failure, um, which is evidenced by greater or, uh, uh, lesser decreases in barbell velocity as the set progresses, that's pr- a pretty good proxy for intraset fatigue. The, Sets taken closer to failure do not produce greater strength gains, be, you know, as evidenced by more, f- bigger losses in barbell velocity. So these folks that would take a set closer and closer to failure and lose more and more barbell velocity because of the intraset fatigue, they don't get better strength gains than folks doing the same amount of volume overall, but staying further away from failure. And it's like. So the people who grind really, really, really hard at the end of a set got either no better or sometimes worse sometimes results worse. compared yeah. to those who did similar amounts of overall training volume, but kept things a little bit f- faster by staying a little bit further away from failure. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's like, well, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, a few, a few studies show that. So you're like, hmm, so maybe, maybe it's not just if it, if it's harder, it's better. Okay. Well, what about, what about for hypertrophy? And, and it looks like that as long as you get somewhere close to failure, so somewhere in that four to five RIR reps and reserve range or closer, it's pretty much all the same. The bigger, uh, uh factor then is going to be overall volume, but then there's a caveat there too. So first let's address this proximity to failure. The only like group that shows a reliable improvement in hypertrophy um, with respect to training to failure are untrained individuals using isolation exercises. And so that's why if you listen to our podcast, if you've read any of our hypertrophy related material, we're like, look, man, if you're doing biceps, curls, calf raises, triceps, press downs, et cetera, like take it to failure, go crazy, you know, get that pump, go to failure. One, the stakes are low because it's an isolation exercise. So you're not using a lot of muscle mass. The overall weights are relatively light and, you know, we're not worried about you generating a ton of extra fatigue. Um, but second, second to that. Uh, there's, yeah, maybe some data signal showing that folks who are relatively untrained get better hypertrophy when they take it to failure for isolation exercises, but for compound exercises, so squats, bench, deadlift, row, et cetera, exercises using more than one joint, there's no real benefit to going all the way to failure. But we do know that if you go to failure, all the way to failure, that you produce a lot more fatigue than if you stop short of failure. And so if you're generating a lot more fatigue by going all the way to failure, guess what you can't do? As much volume. And if there's one very robust, reliable, repeatable signal in the muscular hypertrophy research, it's that more volume tends to drive more hypertrophy. And so if you can't do as much volume, even if you took the sets all the way to failure, that's kind of a, that's kind of a loss. You take the L on that. Uh, but again, there is that caveat there. If you're just like, oh, well, do, do more volume. I'm with bigger arms. Do more arm volume. Duh. Okay, thanks, Feigenbaum. I'm, I'm on my way. Well, if you cannot tolerate that amount of volume, if it is outstripping your recovery resources, your training tolerance, your work capacity, you're going to flounder. Effectively, all of the resources that you would otherwise be using to grow those big, massive cannons that stretch your shirt 
they're going to be going into just keeping your head above water. And so, and, and that's pretty much uh, evidenced by uh, papers looking at hypertrophy. You don't see like a big gain in size on week one or week two, week three, week four. Rather, you see it week five, week six. It basically takes a little bit of time for people to kind of get used to the training and then they're able to grow. Now, there are some caveats there with how people are measuring uh, muscle mass gain, like, you know, the specific technique they use to discern, like, have you grown muscle or not? Nah? But also muscle growth is relatively slow. So the idea that you're going to grow a bunch of muscle, you know, from week zero to week one, week one to week two, eh, it's got to accumulate a little bit for you to actually measure it. So there's, there's some additional nuance there, but the, the takeaway here is that if you're doing too much volume and we have studies where people are doing tons and tons of volume and don't really grow that much, that doesn't tell me that volume is not a strong predictor of muscular hypertrophy. That tells me that doing too much volume effectively outstrips somebody's resources to actually grow. They don't have enough resources on board to dedicate to both recovery and actually growing more muscle tissue. So it has to be the right dose and the right formulation to get the desired result. Um, the last part of this, you know, cause people will say, yeah, all right, well, maybe not train as close to failure, maybe not doing all the volume. All right. I'm with you guys, barbell medicine bros, like case made, but it's gotta be heavier. Heavier is certainly better. It's like, mm, temper that. So when you look at actual studies on this and particularly the meta-analyses, so studies of studies where they collect all the data on strength training uh, intensities and how does that actually correlate to strength improvements. Yeah, no doubt that training at a higher intensity leads to better improvements in maximal strength. No argument for me there. However, that cut point is like 65%. In the literature, when you look at like what is high intensity resistance training, they're talking about 65, 70% of a 1RM. And so if you listen to the data-driven strength podcast uh, uh, that we did uh, together, man, that might've been like nine months ago now or a year ago now, they make the case that pretty much anything over 70% is like, you know, a rep is a rep. Like, meaning that the difference between 70% and 80% on the body that doesn't really know just one is actually heavier causes maybe a little bit more fatigue. Uh, and, and ultimately you, you know, have to temper how many reps you can do per set because you're going to be closer to failure at a higher weight. So think about the differences trying to, trying to discern the differences in how much strength you gain from doing 70% for five sets of five on squats versus 73% for five sets of five on squat. Effectively, I would expect the same exact outcome in, in strength uh, or fitness adaptations in this case, but the fatigue generated from the 73% is likely to be higher. And so depending on who you are, how fit you are, what your performance potential is, um, that may have implications for your programming. And, and, and the, the correlation to progressive loading is that moving from 70 to 73% is not progressive overload. You've just changed what you're doing. Going from 70% for five sets of five to 73% for five sets of five is not progressive overload unless you're adding weight to the bar and can move all of those reps with the same quality as you did when it was lighter, meaning that the RPE for each set was about the same. The barbell velocity for each rep was about the same. Just making it heavier and it getting harder, that means your performance is about the same. It's the exact, it's the same. If you do a set of 315, set at 315 for five reps and rated an eight in the next week, it's 320 and you do a set of five, it's RP nine. You did not get stronger. That's not progressive overload. That's just making it heavier. And then it got harder. You're about the same level of strength. So that is not progressive overload. That is not you forcing the body to adapt. That's, and it's certainly not you taking advantage of any adaptations that you've accrued in the 
inter, uh, the time interval in between those two workouts. It's literally just you changing the goalposts. Yeah. And, and you can see how this would be an attractive idea for folks who want to feel like they're a lot more in control of things than, than we really are. This has kind of been a, a topic that we've been discussing recently and, and we'll get into in the rest of this, this podcast. But the idea of how much of the process of adaptation, the timeline of adaptation, the, the rates of adaptation, obviously there are some things that play into that that are kind of more or less uh, within our control. Like, hey, maybe how much you sleep, your nutrition, you know, certain things like that, that may have more elements that we can, we can control about them. But like a really substantial portion of this um, is not necessarily something that we can directly control. But if you are under the impression that, Hey, if I do this in my programming, this, you know, number of sets and reps and, and, and this particular weight today, that this is going to specifically drive it up within the next 48 hours. And then the next time I'll do it again, whatever the case is, you know, you may be kind of, diluting yourself a little bit. And then you get to that next session. And if you add weight and it's markedly harder and you keep telling yourself, yeah, the harder it is, this is going to keep getting me stronger and stronger. Again, we see this all the time. Where do we see it? Oftentimes in our rehab (laughs) side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively, if once you've dug yourself into this fatigue hole of despair, it's really hard to get out unless you take a wholesale approach to tra- changing your training so that you can not only recover from what you the hole you've dug yourself into uh but then also like still tolerate some current activity some uh training in the interim and it, it's just hard to do because people are like no but it's got to be heavier and you're like yeah but that's not working obviously it's not working because yeah you're adding weight to the bar but it's getting much much harder maybe even too hard for you to complete all the reps maybe instead of a set of five you moved to a set of three because you couldn't do five reps that's not you getting stronger you just change the task right so it's like we want people to get what they want to get out of training we want people to get stronger we want people to gain muscle mass to improve cardiorespiratory fitness and the the point is it's going to be very difficult to predict how quickly these adaptations actually occur and select ahead of time the weights the rest periods or whatever that you know the specific adaptation you're trying to trying to achieve it's going to be hard if not impossible to actually predict when that occurs and so while it's okay to have a ballpark target you're like well last week i did this and you know the last few weeks i've been doing this so i estimate i should be around here for today that's fine have a ballpark okay but you need to take real time cues real time feedback uh, as far as what you're doing to uh, uh, sort of match that training load that day to get the desired fitness adaptations and not generate too much fatigue. Just making a workout harder doesn't drive more fitness adaptations. And as we just discussed, in some cases, it's actually less. We'd like to match the training stress to the individual's performance potential on a given day so that we can manage fatigue and not dig you into that fatigue pit of despair. once the fatigue is, is very, very high and you, you're not getting rid of it, if it persists for too long, I mean, unfortunately, you, you might you might have to call upon us and our pain and rehab team uh, to, to get you out of it. We we don't want to have this business model. All right. That's not the idea. You'll note that all of our training programs have auto regulation in there and a bunch of fail safes that we try to like keep people away. Sometimes people get unlucky and it happens anyway. But I think that belief system that like it's got to be harder, it's got to be heavier, got to do it every week or every time I see this thing again, otherwise I'm not making progress. Well, you're just out kicking your coverage is is the issue. We, we don't have a good timeline on like how fast do strength adaptations occur? 
I can tell you normative data uh, for certain uh, cohorts, certain groups of people, like how much strength on average do they gain over 12 weeks for a specific training program, you know, uh, or, or longer. But as far as like, is it 48 hours, 72 hours? Is it one week, two weeks, three weeks? And then, you know, we don't have that data thing one. And then thing two, we don't have like long-term normative data for what a person's, those subjects average strength is either. So like, imagine it's your first week of exercise, right? You picked up the beginner template. You're like, okay, I'm squatting three days a week because you just wanted to do all squats all the time for your squat pattern movements. You didn't want to do any leg press or single leg work, whatever. You just squatting for a set of five on one day. You're squatting for sets of 10 on another day and eights on another day. And so then you do that one week and then the next week you come in and you're like, oh, I'm adding a little bit of weight. Cool. And then the third week comes around and you're like, oh, I get to add a little bit more weight cool. I don't know that you got any stronger because basically you could be riding that sort of upward slope of that sinusoidal wave towards the peak of your, you know, baseline performance. If that happens with a great enough magnitude over a long enough period of time, I'm like, yeah, sure. You got stronger. Cool. But just, you know, a five pound difference in your squat performance or 10 pound difference in your deadlift performance. Um, I can't tell you if you got stronger or not. I could tell you you performed better, but I don't know that you're actually stronger. Does that make sense? It's like people have a range, right? You have a baseline level of strength and then, yeah, maybe it's 10% plus or minus either, each way. You've had way bigger swings than that recently. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, can you speak to that though, Austin? Like how, how much would you expect somebody's strength performance to vary uh, over a given period of time? Um, I mean, I think that both of us experience, uh, th it's kind of a degree, a, a matter of degree based on a ton of other surrounding circumstances. So, I mean, all, I think both of us experience on a very routine basis, just humming along probably fluctuations within like a 5% range at our level of, of strength, uh, all the time, not even, not even a, a big deal. We don't bat an eye at that. If things are kind of, you know, not going great in life or sleep or something like that, it's not unusual for us to see maybe a little bit closer to a 10%. That's getting a little bit more towards like a, you know, a bigger, a bigger fluctuation, you know? So for example, like if I'm hip, you know, very routinely deadlifting 660, then that would be like a drop all the way down to 600 or something like that on, on, uh, you know, that, that'd be like a pretty significant down day for me. And then when things are like, profoundly rough, <laughs> like I experienced recently with a big move and job change and all kinds of other, you know, physical demands and sleep disruption and, and, and all sorts of other things that were getting in the way. Yeah. I was seeing even bigger upwards of 15 on some, on some lifts, even upwards of almost 20%. And I was just like having to put that in context of what was going on around me and trying to best match the loads that I was lifting on a given day to where I was on that day. I could have said, no, the paper says that I need to be doing this because that's what my program said when I wrote it out a bunch of weeks ago and put that weight on the bar. And that would have been a very foolish decision. Um, but instead allowing things to fluctuate to match where I was on a given day and, and kind of zooming way out and recognizing that this is an extremely long-term process. These fluctuations are part of the process of training, part of the process of being a human, <laughs> right. And, and recognizing that these kind of fluctuations are not worth panic, but rather should just be, you know, you just ride that, ride that wave. And, and kind of like what I mentioned at the very beginning, like this idea of overload, this, this, this term seems to be really used in the strength training or, or, or strength and hypertrophy weightlifting related world. It's not a term that I ever heard in any of the other sports that I did. 
it was not a term that was used in the pool in racing or in conditioning, you know, endurance sports, any of the other things that I'd done before. And, and when I think about it, it's like, what if we try to translate this concept to that world. It's like if I went into to my swim training on the first day and I and I swam some, you know, 50 meter repeats or something like that. And then a couple of days later, the coach said, yeah, so in order, the only way you're going to get better is if you do those, but just like, you know, just swim them faster. And it's like, well, yeah, that's the goal. That's what I'm trying to accomplish here is getting faster, but I can't just like, just get faster. Whereas that's effectively what we're asking people to do when it's like, if, the, if you frame it as in order to get stronger, just lift more weight. It's like, well, mm -hmm. is that the direction that this is going? Or is it that when I have gotten stronger, I will be able to lift more weight at that kind of similar relative effort level. And in the yeah, pool, it's not I was naturally seeing my times coming down as I adapted, it was not like, oh, in order to get faster, I have to go faster. It's like, yes, that's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> yeah. You're putting in the work to get faster. You're not getting faster to put in the work. You know, it's like yes. that Greg Lamont quote thing, right? Like it, it never gets easier. You just go faster. It's yeah. like, <laughs> your training should feel about the same level of hardness throughout your career. It's, it's going to change as you get more and more advanced, more and more trained or whatever. Yeah. You're going to do more volume, some more reps. You're going to do heavier weights. You're going to adjust rest periods, etc. But it, it still should feel about the same level of hardness throughout. Effectively, you got more and more fit and can now tolerate the higher training dose to drive again, the fitness adaptations at a, at a tolerable level of fatigue. Um, if, and if you, I'm, be, if if I'm you, being yeah. honest, if, if I'm being honest, my training nowadays is easier than it was in the past. And that's just because I didn't, you know, the programming and, and, and my thought process around this was backwards back then. And I, and we were kind of in that similar realm of like, it has to be really hard for it to work. Um, and, and even though I do more work overall per week now, even though the weights that I lift in magnitude are in absolute terms are, are heavier, the actual, you know, uh, uh, effort that I put forth per week really is lower. If I rated RPEs on a set per set basis or a per session basis, I stay feeling fresher and better overall than I did back then. And I'm getting better results at this point. Yeah, that's probably, that probably has more to do with your, you know, appropriate training stress exactly. now than before. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, effectively you're further away from failure on most of your sets. And because of that, you're not out kicking your coverage with respect not, to managing and fatigue to, and not trying to force weights that aren't there on a given day because of my interpretation of how this process of adaptation works. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. So you really, we have two problems. Problem one is like the variability in performance on any given day. Right. And, and then the, the other variable, uh, is, well, how much is enough, you know, to, to get what you, you, you're trying to get. And so, yeah, it, it, you, you can solve both problems by matching the training stress to what you have on that given day. Effectively, that'll tell you it's enough, you know, at least as far as your, your program is intelligently pro is laid out and, and, you know, is, is covering all the bases, ticking all the boxes of a, of a good strength and conditioning program. Um, and then as far as like your performance variability on a day, well, it's already telling you like what to do. It work up to a set of five at RP eight, that's going to tell you that's going to determine the load based on your performance potential and that variability on a given day. And it's going to make sure you don't do too much by just adding weight indiscriminately and accidentally hitting a nine or a 10. People are like, yeah, but it was more. So that's good. It's like, we already covered that, you know, heavier is not necessarily better if it's also significantly harder because uh, you just can't tolerate that. I think interestingly, if you looked at probably your average, um, you know, your average load that you'd handled on squat, bench, deadlift, 
um, from maybe a few years back and compared it to now, I would, I would wager that the average load that you're lifting now is heavier, but your proximity to failure is further away, which evidence is a few things. One that you're stronger now than you were before. Uh, but, but also when you look at like how that average increased over time, it did not start to increase until you moved further away from failure and actually, and actually did less, a little bit less, not necessarily volume wise, but, but overall, like how close you're working to failure. And I, I think that's an interesting takeaway. It's like, we want your ceiling to improve. We want your top end performance, your absolute max to get better. Yes. But in order to get that, I think a better mindset is like, well, let's just bring this floor up. Let's improve your average, your day-to-day strength that you have on any any given day. So when you go into like a new block, instead of being like, I got to add five pounds or 5% or whatever it is each week in order to like have a successful block. Well, look at what you did on a similar block before. On average, if you were working with, you know, 315 pounds um, for sets of five and your new block has a bunch of sets of five, well, now we want to do 317 or 320 on average. So some days it might be 320, 325. Other days it might be 310, 305. And if it happens to go 320 one week and then 305 the next week, you don't have to feel bad about that second week. It's just part of the process. We just don't have a good timeline for how quickly these things improve. So somebody said that they added 15 pounds to their squat in two weeks. In my brain, I'm like, oh, you you probably had that in you the whole time. You just had a good day when you're telling me you increased your squat by 15 pounds. Now, if we're talking 100 pounds, I'm like, oh, you certainly got stronger, right? But because the magnitude has is, is, is grown so much. Yeah. And, so. and in the course of this training process, like if you need the stars to align perfectly for every training session <laughs> in order for you to feel like you're you know, making progress, that's not sustainable. Like you're not going to get very far. Uh, and that's just, again, the nature of this thing. There are these ups and downs that we have to account for. And failing to account for them is, uh, I think, a sign of a, of a poorly designed program and a poor approach to training. Now, everybody's way that this gets applied in practice is going to look a little bit different based on what they, you know, find with the ne- with necessary trial and error over time. What do they prefer? What do they respond best to? Things like that. Like your training and my training looks different. Most of the people who are listening, their trainings are going to look different. Um, so copying somebody else's may be a place to start and experiment, but is not necessarily the way to select what may work best for you. But there are these kind of overarching principles. And, and then when you get when you set out with a particular training program, the way that you interpret, hey, how did I tolerate this session? How am I going to select my loads? What are my expectations for the next session, the next week, things like that um, are really important. And that's what we're trying to help people kind of reconceptualize when we when we talk about this in terms of like, what is the sequence that leads to, say, load increases over time? um, And, and can we predict these things in advance? Can we time them in advance? Can we confidently say, you know, that by this date or by this session, this is going to be where I'm at? And it's like, no, these things uh, to a very large extent happen independent of our control. And we have to, to some extent, expect, uh, accept that. This happens all the time in, in powerlifting meets. Have you noticed this? Like people will have, say like, oh, well, here's my training block leading up to the meet. So here's what I expect at the meet. And then the expectations are like way higher than what somebody did during the block. And, you know, some of that is due to like this idea, like, well, I'm going to peak and, you know, remove all this fatigue and I'm going to have a great performance above average. And it's like, well, I would expect that removing fatigue during the peaking process would set you up to have a better performance than acquiring a ton of extra fatigue. I'm on board with that. But as far as having an out of your mind performance on all three lifts on a single day, 
I mean, you're asking for per- the perfect environment, the perfect circumstances, the perfect storm to effectively <laughs> coalesce. And then you, you go out and set the world on fire. I would be more in line with saying, I expect you to have an average performance based on what you've been doing the last, you know, month or so. And if you happen to be having a good day, great. And if you happen to be having a bad day, it's not, it's not what we wanted, but you know, it's what we had on the day. And we're going to uh, focus on some, some process oriented things within the the meet, you know, so selecting the right attempts to maximize your performance potential on a given day, given the hand you're dealt and, and that's it. But the idea that you're going to add 40 pounds to your deadlift in a week, barring some sort of like injury resolving or like crazy PED that I am not familiar with (laughs) seems unlikely, you know, unless that was, you had a really down week the week before, um, something like that. So yeah, ultimately I don't think we can time these things very well. And and as far as like how this impacts training management, ultimately we're just trying to match the person's current fitness and performance potential to the training stimulus. And we can use real time feedback to do that. RPE, RIR, barbell velocity, et cetera. And that's hedging our bets for the person to get the best result from their current training program. So let's apply this practically. So Austin, in your opinion, how often should people be adding weight to the bar? We'll just assume we'll limit this to compound uh, exercises, squat bench, deadlift, stuff like that. How often should people be adding weight to the barbell? So it would be wonderful if there was a nice, neat, tidy explanation for something, <laughs> answer for something like that. It, it depends on so many factors to include, you know, the person's level of training advancement, um, the actual program that they're on, how it's set up and designed. Um, and, and so I don't think that there is a distinct time frame that we can tell you that you should be uh, regularly adding weight to the bar. Um Obviously, we typically observe that people who are earlier on in their training career are able to increase loads uh, more regularly compared to those who are at very, you know, much more advanced and, and later stages of their of their training career. But at the same time, there are even exceptions to that. There are periods of time where both of us, for example, at our you know much later stage in training, where we just go on a tear for a few for a few weeks in a row, and we're adding weight much more quickly than maybe a beginner who's having like a really rough time in their life or sleep or kids or all the other things that can like turn people's lives upside down. And so, I think that providing a you know rigid numerical guideline in terms of a magnitude of weight or time frame of expectation of how often people should be increasing loading, um, is really, it's, it's either as, as likely to cause uh, uh, negative effects or harm as it is benefit, or it may in, in some situations be, you know, have more negative effects by either setting expectations that people can't, uh, uh, match live up to, or by setting expectations that they try to reach when it's way out of reach for them and end up setting themselves back with pain or injury or something like that. So you're right, even though it sounds admittedly, and and we don't like sounding nebulous when, when we can avoid it, uh, but when we're trying to match loading to where people are at on a given day using this auto-regulatory strategy, this is why we talk about, hey, teaching people this, this concept early on, whether it's something like ratings of perceived exertion, estimated repetitions in reserve, the feeling scale, whatever the case is, getting that thought process and getting that skill practiced very early on in the training career, even if it's imperfect, because you have such a huge, you know, margin for error early on. Um, if you overshoot a little bit, if you undershoot a little bit, again, probably not a huge deal early on, but practicing these things so that you can get used to matching, Hey, what's the right amount of hard 
to use a phrase that uh, Dr. Miles likes. Learning what is the right amount of hard on a given day is a very useful skill and, and trying to stay within those kind of uh, uh, you know margins for error. Yeah. One thought I've had recently is that like people newer to training, because you, you do tend to see this like more rapid, maybe improvement where they're able to add weight to the bar uh, somewhat regularly. You, you see that frequently. And, and I, I, I wonder like, is some of that, maybe not all of it, but at least some of that due to like the greater volatility in their performance, meaning like they come in untrained. So you don't even have, you don't know where the floor is and you don't know where their ceiling is. Right. But if you could somehow, you know, triangulate their performance, like, all right, what is your best performance on a given day? What is your worst performance on a given day? And you know, what's somewhere in the middle, some of that progress that you're seeing in the, in the, the initial phases probably has a lot to do with how volatile that is. Whereas if you have a very experienced trainee, they've got reams of training data and history and they're like, okay, well, on my worst day, I'm two and a half standard deviations below where I'm average at and here's the floor, right? And then here's a great day and it's two and a half standard deviations above. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere in the middle, most days are in the middle. So I think, you know, how often should people add weight? I'd like to be optimistic, you know, and empower folks and, 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 you know, encourage them one more time into the fray. But rather than expecting an improvement necessarily, I, I would expect you to perform about the same uh, week to week until these processes like getting stronger, gaining muscle mass, improving cardiorespiratory fitness have manifested, taken hold, and and fatigue is also well managed. So if you squatted 200 pounds for a set of five on week one, I would kind of expect you to do about the same, you know, within a couple percent on week two. Does that mean you shouldn't add weight to the bar? I'm not saying that, but you should only add weight to the bar if your performance on that particular day that you're squatting seems to be higher than it was the day before or the week before. Um, And if it's not, you should temper the load because, again, the point is to try to match the training stress to your current level of fitness and performance, not just add weight or reduce weight indiscriminately. Otherwise, you get a mismatch and that can lead to worse results, if not no results. Okay. So this ties into our next question. Well, how often should people repeat a weight? You're telling me I should just do the same weights every week for months on end, Baraki? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, certainly not. Um, and and if you feel like you're in a situation where you are needing to repeat weight, the exact same weights for weeks on end, I actually start to question like, hey, I would expect more variability than this. Not that you're yes. not deliberately adding weight, but just again, the nature of humans and life and performance, I would even expect you to need to decrease almost as often as I would expect you to need to increase. And so then that raises the concern of like, hey, how much are you actually paying attention to where your performance is at on your warm up sets or something like that when you're working your way up? Um, Because there should be more variability, there should be, you know, uh, in, in my own training, I look back over the past several weeks, and there are certain weeks where, hey, definitively above average. And I, and in my mind, I'm like, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I can pretty much guess like in terms of the concept of regression to the mean, there's going to be some week coming up where probably things are going to dip back down below my average and, and then, uh, and then kind of bounce back up and down a little bit. And sure enough, that tends to be the case, not necessarily the immediate following week, maybe a couple weeks later, maybe a month later. And so these fluctuations are naturally part of this process. Are there weeks, you know, two weeks in a row where I've done the same weight? Yes. Are there three three weeks in a row where I've done the same weight? 
probably not most of the time. Honestly, by the yeah. third week, I'm usually expecting there to have been some more fluctuation happening. Would I panic if I had to, or if I did that through? Not necessarily. By like the time we're out at like a month or something, that I'm like, okay, uh, that's not something that I would say in my own training ever really happens um, because there should be some fluctuation up or down. And if it is, uh, if it's the exact same, not paying enough attention, if it's all downward, then I'm wondering, Hey, is there something else going on in life that's causing this? Or is this just this programming training setup, not something that I'm responding to? That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. If there's limited variation in performance and that I've actually done the same weight, you know, three, four weeks in a row, usually that's a result of like overshooting on some days and undershooting on other days. And so the actual performance has varied, but the actual load has stayed the, the same. Um, I've definitely seen it with some clients. They're like, yeah, I just worked up to 200 for the, my set today and the next week and the next week and the week after that. And, and, and that, yeah, I think part of that is people not uh, paying attention, close enough attention to like their performance on a given day. But then also people can kind of hamstring themselves by varying how they're warming up to get those signals, right? It's like if your warmups are constantly changing in load, it's very hard to develop this sort of history, this mental uh, uh, sort of uh, memory of, well, how hard should this feel if I'm at an average level of performance or above average level of performance? So you and I, for example, have these like ballpark weights, right? For, for SBD and probably some other exercises. But like for me on a squat, I can tell you, you know, how 484 moves whether or not i'm going to squat close to 600 that day or not same and on on a bench press how i move either uh if i'm using kilo plates if it's three 352 and if i'm using pound plates 365 i can tell you that day if i'm on a bench over 400 for a single if that's the workout and on deadlifts it's right around 600 usually if i'm working with kilos it's going to be 595 i can tell you like am i pulling close to 700 that day uh or am i gonna you know do something much much lighter and if it pound plates it's usually going to be 585 um it doesn't mean that that's like the last set i'll ever do for all of these sort of lifts but i'm i i can tell with pretty a pretty high degree of accuracy yeah here's the next weight i should pick but that's due to my training history if i a need a lot of and, experience yeah and still to this day though i still may need more you know a some higher granularity and take another set so if on a squat for it for 84 so 220 kilos moves crazy good and i'm like well i gotta hit a top single i may just jump from there to 270 595 or 600 which austin shaves head he's like that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard but for <laughs> but if i know it's supposed to be a submaximal single i'm pretty confident if 484 moved like air right if it moved not like air more like uh, a you know wet paper i'm like maybe i should take 540 or 550 first just to be sure and if that moves really well, then I'll jump up again. But if it moved heavy enough, I'm like, nah, I'm a little under today, but that's hard enough. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, it's okay to take additional sets to get some some more granularity. But I think when people are saying, all right, well, this week I'm targeting 205 for my top set. And so my last warm-up is going to be 185. And then the next week, all right, I'm targeting 210 for my top set. So my last warm-up is going to be 190 or 195. It's like, I want you to have like this history that you can pull from. Uh, and these sort of benchmark weights and yep those will go up over time but you're going to have to get a lot stronger for them to change significantly and uh, so yeah i would keep warm-ups pretty much the same and use those that real-time feedback to help you determine what your you know top set weights should be for the day and that's going to give you additional feedback you're like well i picked wrong or i picked right and you can make a note of that get some more information build that history 
And you should adjust subsequent sets if you have back offsets appropriately. If you're supposed to do 75% for back offsets and you overshot your target, adjust down your estimated 1RM to use, no shit, a 75% load. Uh, If you undershot, you can go up. And earlier in people's training career, they start paying attention to these things. I think, again, you're starting to build that earlier on, which is the idea. You you don't have to wait until you're like super advanced. Yep, I agree with that. Um, Okay, so... Now it's a similar type of question, but I just want to directly address it. If people have to take weight off the bar for one week, I think we've well established that that's okay. We expect that sort of volatility, but what if it's multiple weeks in a row? It just, it goes down, it goes down, it goes down, it goes down. Like how long should you allow that to persist before you take action? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's so many different reasons why this could happen. And a lot of the time, uh, when when we observe this, we can identify certain things going on in people's lives that maybe they are or may not be accounting for when it when it comes to its potential impact on their training. So I will, you know, my first question for folks usually is like, tell me about what's going on with your life, your sleep, things like that, because that may help us need to, you know, we may need to reframe some of our expectations for what's feasible, realistic, what's a likely outcome in the course of training. If everything else in life is like perfect, right? Then I'm going to be starting to ask questions about, hey, how are we approaching our load selection? How are we picking these sets that are then necessarily coming down? Did we start out at the beginning from a point where there was like major overshooting happening and we're kind of coming back towards where we should be? Or is the, you know, if I watch video and, and get the sense that, hey, performance is about, you know, uh, they're, they're like uh, proximity to failure, for example, their RPE8 is truly like decrease declining week to week to week. And there's nothing else going on that can, fe- you know, feasibly explain it in the rest of their life. then Again, this may just not be the programming setup for them. Different people respond to different uh, things differently. That's what makes all of us us. And so maybe time to reassess, figuring out what are they enjoying about the current program? What are they not enjoying? How do they feel about the overall dosage, the, the, the overall workload? Does it feel like it's a lot? Does it feel like it's really little? Movement selection, and then just start trial and error. And that's kind of the way that we come to, um, you know, programming setups for most of the people we work with, including ourselves. You know, my own process has been quite a lot of trial and error to get to where I am right now, uh, figuring out what do I enjoy, what do I not enjoy, um, and, and tweaking all sorts of things until I've come to this very sustainable setup that has an acceptable amount of performance fluctuation and then just a very gradual upward trend in that like baseline day-to-day strength, that floor that we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, it obviously depends on who we're, we're dealing with and it w- where they're coming to us from, you know, so like a person who just came off a meet, for example, and they start out week one, I would expect them on average to be stronger than average <laughs> for the, for their own like current baseline. Why? Cause you just peaked and prepped for a meet and everything. You put all your chips on the table and you just went and competed. Right. Uh, so I expect that first week, man, I'm, I'm feeling strong. And then that may taper off, you know, as particularly as you spread yourself a little bit more thin with respect to other fitness adaptations that we maybe let decay on the previous training blocks as we got ready for the meet. Um, And then as you get further and further away from sort of a a competition that you had a date for, you had to show up and do the thing. I mean, those things can all contribute. But yeah, I'm of the opinion as well that if somebody's weights are actually going down, down, down and the the environment is ripe for gains, (laughs) that, that tells me like, yeah, we could probably do some do a better job here at, at picking out uh, elements of the training stimulus that the person thrives thrives on. And so, getting feedback on yeah, what ex, what movements they like, uh, how do they feel about the total training load right now, 
uh, total training time duration, you know, sort of that sort of stuff and, and kind of, uh, figuring out what somebody likes, but I definitely don't expect people to, to see like this sort of steady trajectory upwards week to week. I certainly want to see that, you know, over the longer period of time. Like if we look quarter to quarter, sure. Uh, and, and you know, but that again assumes that we're training for the same goals. The training adherence is good. Training environment is ripe for gains and all this other sort of stuff. Um, if I told you Austin, like, Hey, you know, a year from now, you're going to be 5% stronger. You take that. <laughs> no question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, but so what that's really going to look like is not you improving, you know, a quarter of a percent every month or whatever. It's going to look like some months are down, other months are average, and some months are above average. You're like, whoa, yeah, we're off to the races. The training may actually be the, ch- the same the entire way through. Yeah. And there may not it, even be a clearly identifiable reason for these ups and it may not necessarily be, oh, this month, you know, I ha- was off from work or I took a vacation or something else. It's sometimes for us, it's been the opposite of like, you know, hey, this past week, like I actually went back to work in the hospital for, for in, in my life after almost two months off. And then as soon as I started in the hospital on Friday, Friday and Saturday were both, you know, fantastic sessions for me. Whereas before that, I felt really poorly in the earlier in the week. So it doesn't always fit what you would expect. A lot of fluctuation yeah. that happens for reasons that we can't explain or outside of our control. Yeah. Outside of like training environment and like other sort of physical activity stressors. So for example, you started to do a bunch of conditioning work or BJJ or whatever it may be that kind of sort of spreads you a little uh, more thin, uh, thinly. I just don't get worried about when people, people's strength are going down, you know, two or three weeks in a row. It starts getting longer than that. I feel like particularly folks who work with us, they're here for the, for the, for the strength gains. Then I'm kind of like, mm, let's, let's investigate this a little bit, a little bit more. But, but again, if it's only like a few percent, <laughs> that's really tough to make heads or tails of. Um, and you, you know, so yeah, just, just for the listeners at home, it, it is okay to take weight off the bar. If that better matches your current level of fitness and performance, if it happens for a long, uh, a prolonged period of time, then yeah, we may need to address elements of the programming you know, that's okay. But I I still would not expect this linear increase or a linear decrease in performance unless something else was afoot, right? Like the idea that you're going to go down 5% every week without something else going on, it seems unlikely. You know, I could think of a a few ways to program that maybe, but (laughs) that would be expected. Um, Okay. So last question then for this practical application section. All right. So you're saying, you know, sometimes you're weaker, sometimes you're stronger and uh, just work with the hand you're dealt. Okay, Baraki. But if I'm constantly being dealt bad hands over and over and over again, isn't that a sign that I need to deload? I mean, I need to take a light week. I got to pivot and do something. What's what's up with that? Yeah. Um, so not necessarily. And, and we also should probably define some of the terms here. So I think that in the context of typical, you know, barbell related strength training, when people talk about a deload, um, they are often describing a somewhat predetermined period, often like a week, for example, where either or both, I feel like a lot of times it's both the absolute, you know, intensities, the, 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 the loads that they're handling and the overall training volume for the week has been decreased. And that's, the, the idea being that if we decrease the amount of training stress that the person's experiencing, that that will provide them more resources to recover, you know, rebuild, adapt, come back the next week and be able to better tolerate more normal training, at, be at higher intensities, higher volumes, 
whatever the case is. And yeah, we're saying that there's going to be a fair amount of performance fluctuation uh, on a fairly routine basis. And we are fans of kind of riding that wave, um, knowing that, hey, here's my baseline day-to-day strength. Some days are going to be better. Some days are going to be worse. But we would like to over you know, the medium to longer term to be seeing uh, a gradual upward trend in, in performance in order to stick with the current plan. If things are declining, performance is not going in that direction that we want, we would probably be tweaking programming variables along the way to see if we can get things moving in the direction we want. But if we are seeing that, say, performance is not going in the direction we want. Um, and the person is telling us, like, hey, I'm hating this. Psychologically, they're destroyed. <laughs> they're, they're, they're feeling exceptionally poorly, not straight up not having a good time in their training. Then it's perfectly fine to do something like that, to make more radical changes on a defined period of time. It may give people some, again, maybe a little bit more sense of control <laughs> over the situation that we're going to use this week. And, you know, you're going to put maybe some more emphasis on, you know, your recovery and things like that to the extent that you can. And then we'll have a fresh plan for you. And sometimes that can be a good like little psychological trick when people are coming back to like, hey, fresh start, gonna gonna try this different different approach. But I don't think that, you know, if we're experiencing expected performance fluctuations, like if again, one week is a little bit less than the last week, we don't need to interpret that as, oh, no, now I need uh, my performance is going down, I suddenly need to radically overhaul my training, or I need to take a big deload or something like that. Because again, we're not robots. We don't have this predictable, uh, reliable response on a known time frame to training interventions. Um, we should just accept that those are going to happen. So I think, you know, from my perspective, when we talk about things like deloads, or if you're going to make more radical, these pivot weeks, low stress weeks, whatever fancy term you want to call it, um, psychological stuff is a perfectly valid reason to do it. You've talked about situations where like logistically, you know, things going on in people's lives that somewhat mandate a shift from the previous uh, kind of training setup, or if somebody just wants to do it, that's fine. Uh, but what I, where I think that people might go wrong is like expecting say week to week to week to week increases semi linearly, if not actually linearly. And then if anything, their performance fails to meet that, if there's a downturn suddenly that that prompts a deload. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's uh, the right strategy, knowing what we know about variability of day-to-day performance, week-to-week performance, and that's kind of maybe part of the process. And you don't know, maybe the week after that, you were going to take a bigger jump anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. So like on the one hand, if, if you're guiding somebody one-on-one, you get a lot of feedback, a lot of interaction, um, and you have just more data to work with, you, you can kind of parse this out a little, a little bit better. And so I want to address that and then kind of come back to, well, what about your templates, dude? There's a deload weeks in your templates. Why? Okay. So in the first situation where you're getting all this extra feedback and information, um, yeah, you can ascertain whether or not somebody psychologically just desires a deload. And if you do like, cool, take one. I, I don't think they should be every third week, fourth week, fifth week, sixth week. If you're deloading that regularly, I mean, you think about the training year, well, you're just training less for a substantial portion of the year. And I would expect less results that way. Um, if you feel like you, and especially if you feel like you need a deload that frequently, imagine like how tough the training program would have to be for you, Austin, to need a deload every fourth week. Like I was just hammering you whatever. And you'd be like, bro, what are you doing? You just, yeah. you're literally taking one twelfth of my year and committing it to a deload because yeah. you're, you're crushing me. So yeah, I feel like if you regularly need a deload, um, as far as like physical symptoms, you feel like 
man, I, I'm feeling really, really run down or even psychological symptoms. You're like, I'm super, super fatigued and I'm not motivated. Things are stale and you need that regularly on defined intervals. Mm, that tells me maybe some of the programming could be could be adjusted. Um, yeah, for logistically, like if you're traveling, you have less access to certain um, training implements or, or are unable to do um, elements of the training program that fit the current training goal. Yeah, you may just have a, a deload week that that can happen. Um, or if you were previously training for one type of training goal that did not fit the training goal that you need to start training for because it's now in season or you got a meet coming up or something like that, or you just want to change training focuses and the training is substantially different. I could see a case for having a lower stress week and then gradually building back into that process. So those things seem reasonable uh, to me. Uh, and you can do that one-on-one -on -one, uh, for folks in our templates. Yeah. I mean, every, fifth, sixth, seventh week or whatever. In some of the templates, there's a, a deload. And usually what you see here is that the training focus markedly changes and or the elements of the training markedly change. You went from doing only heavy multi-rep sets to now you're doing singles. You went from doing um, something that was really far away, proximity to failure to now something closer to failure. And you sort of were sort of building that sort of on-ramp into the new programming and that's those are perfectly reasonable strategies i just feel like if you need a deload you feel like you need a deload very very regularly that tells me elements of the programming could probably be tweaked up a little bit so you could have longer training phases longer mesocycles before you feel like you need a deload um, but again I, I just rely on feedback from the individual they tell me they feel like they need one i'm not one to really argue uh, unless i think it'd be detrimental i can't think of a case offhand where i was like this is really going to be bad for you um, yeah if they ask for it though i just i would get a little more information and say what's making you say that and then if they tell me i feel really beat up or this particular body part or something feels exceptionally fatigued i would just ask something like you know what do you think is the biggest contributor out of the current weekly training setup which element what what day do you feel like something in particular is driving that and then that may be something that we reassess and we come to the conclusion that hey maybe it's generating more fatigue than it's worth in terms of adaptive stimulus and i might drop it or sub it out or do something different right somebody's doing a bunch of barbell yeah. rows and they're telling me that, Hey, my low back is really smoked from, from those things. And it's limiting my deadlift. Then cool. I'm going to switch you to a seated cable row or something. And you can get the, the rowing stimulus out of it without the low back fatigue. Cause Hey, it probably ain't worth it for that. If your goal is to deadlift more, you know, that's a common yeah. scenario that I come across all the time with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, you know, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway from this section is that it, if you are keeping the same training goals and you like your training program as it is right now, and you have one week or even two weeks in a row where things aren't necessarily going your way, you don't necessarily need a deload to change training. You can tweak a little bit, provided you have the necessary knowledge base to tweak that intelligently. And, and so, you know, a, a lot of our programs, particularly um, the ones that are like, yeah, you can run this block ad infinitum as long as you're seeing progress. And it's like, yeah, if you have a few weeks in a row where things aren't going your way, maybe you got to, maybe you should change your program. And that's what we recommend in those texts. But if I had absolute control over the training, I, I may not do a deload week. I may just change pieces of it, um, to try to try to get some more life out of it. Um, and yeah, don't be, don't be alarmed to quote Alanis Morissette. Don't be alarmed if things, you know, go down one week or two weeks in a row that that should happen. Just like things should go up one week. Or two weeks in a row, um, both sides of the same coin. So, you know, man, 
I really thought that we were going to have more rants in this thing. I thought for sure we'd be off to the races, just, you know, hemming and hawing. This would be really hard to follow. I, I, I think we, we could have done this in a more scripted manner, but I also think that'd be less entertaining. And also maybe you would be, people would turn it off. They'd be like, these guys are literally just reading from a script. And I can't stand podcasts like that unless they're telling me a story, you know? If they're telling me like American history type stuff, I'm like, all right, cool. I understand you got to script this. But if it's like an edutainment type podcast and people are reading a script, I, I just can't. I'm like, I feel like you're reading me a textbook. Uh, okay. So that's been a wrap on episode 187. This is the Progressive Loading Podcast, part two. Uh, again, part one. I mean, these really aren't, weren't designed to be in parts, but when we first talked about progressive loading and the impetus for maybe instead of forcing the adaptation, letting the adaptations come to you and then increasing the load. Uh, we covered that first in episode 129. That's linked in the description below. Also, the two Spondy articles from Dr. Derek Miles are also linked there, uh, as well as the podcast we had with him last week. And, you know, we're going to put this up on on YouTube. You're going to see Austin in his brand new headset mic. He's ready to take on the world of gaming. And uh, let us know what you what you want to see on, on the uh, YouTube channel. You want more podcasts? You want more training vlogs? You want more talking head stuff? I just set up a little green green screen in my studio here. So I, you know what I'm afraid of is that I'm going to post a video of just me in front of a green screen and then the internet's going to take that and do all sorts of heinous things. Anyway, this has been the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me here on episode 187. Uh, before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Join us here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.